Today's scripture is found in Job 4 and 5. I'll be reading Job 4, 1 through 6. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who who was stumbling, and you have made firm a feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? This is God's word. You may be seated. All right, good morning. Uh, Hope you have your Bibles or a Bible app because we're going to actually make our way through chapters four and five. I wanted Hala to not have to be here for 30 minutes, so I uh, redid the first six verses, but we're going to walk through that. And as you're turning there, please grab your Bibles or a Bible app. And I want you to think about uh, a question. Um, Who in your life uh, do you give uh, a place of like, I, I want their advice when? Think about when you're feeling anxiety. Think about world events are happening like they are right now. Think about cultural issues that come up or, or your own hardship or suffering. If you could, there, I think everybody has somebody like this. There's people that are you go to in your minds uh, physically. You talk to them. However, you, it may be, it may be uh, somebody on the news. It could be somebody you listen to their blog or, or podcast or something like that. But all of us have people that we go to. Why? Why do you go to them? Well, maybe you'd say, well, they're older and they're wiser. I go to them because they've been successful in life. I, I go to them because, boy, what they have to say seems really reasonable. It seems like whenever they speak, it makes sense. It's kind of logical, whatever. And so, so we all have that who and we have the why of why it is we go uh, to them. I hope, I hope that uh, if you've come here for any length of time, I hope that you look and say, hey, uh, Chris and the pastors around here are people that I can believe, that I trust, they've proven themselves faithful. Yeah, I, I hope that's true. And yet I want to remind you of something. Uh, John the Baptist, I was reminded about this this week. John the Baptist, uh, Jesus says that John the Baptist, he says this, among those born of women, no one is greater than John the Baptist. Now, what an accolade. Jesus himself says, you're the greatest human being ever born. Of course, apart from him being the very, very God. But he says, man, this is, this is the greatest man ever born of women, right? He is, he is, he, he is in a category of one among, among the, the, the people of earth. And yet, when John comes along, recognizing that he's just a man, he says this, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. So yes, in some sense, the Lord has blessed him and helped him. And John was probably a man that you could trust. And yet, he wanted to point away from himself and say, I'm not the Christ. There's there's another coming after me that I want to tell you about. Zach Eswine is a pastor in St. Louis, and he wrote a terrific little book called The Imperfect Pastor. And he sort of riffs off this idea that John the Baptist looks at himself and says, I'm not the Christ, and says, here's the temptation with a lot of pastors. A lot of pastors feel this temptation or this pressure, you might say, to be able to uh, solve every problem that they are confronted with, to be able to speak eloquently on every cultural issue and theological issue or problem, to be able to be present for everyone exactly when they need it. And, and of course, what does that mean? What a pastor is trying to do is be 
omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, right? And we know that's not possible for a pastor. The wise pastor is somebody who looks and says, I don't know everything, right? I can't be everywhere, right? I, I can't solve every problem. Now, the reason I tell you that is that's a, that's a really helpful thing to you, for you to realize. What I mean by that is you could have the most trusted advisor, but in the end, they're human. And the only perfect source of wisdom is your Bible. The only place you can go and say, this will not fail me is to Scripture, right? People will fail you. Pastors will fail you. Others will fail you around you. The Word of God won't do that. This is our perfect source of wisdom. Paul's going to say that even, even him, here's the Apostle Paul who wrote most of your New Testament, and he's going to say the Bereans that he taught were more noble than other places because when I would speak to them and I would teach them the Word of God, they would go back and they would search the Scriptures to determine whether or not what I said was true, right? That, that's our infallible source, okay? We go to Scripture. But hear me, even in Scripture, now make sure you understand what I'm saying here, even in Scripture you will hear people speak for God and they're wrong. I'm not saying Scripture is wrong. I'm saying you have to understand that in Scripture you're going to see negative and positive examples of people speaking for God. So today we get to a guy named Eliphaz, Eliphaz the Temanite. He is probably the oldest member of the three that came to comfort Job. He's probably considered the wisest. First of all, certainly they, they respected the elderly in a way that like put them up and said, hey, they, they've had life experience. But he comes from a region most likely near Edom that's, under, that's known for its wisdom. So he comes from that place. Here is a wise man. Here's a man that I think I can confidently say loves God, wants to be able to step into Job's life and, and help him through the troubles he's in. And what we hope for, if you, if you don't fast forward and you're just reading this for the first time, you'd be thinking, man, I hope this guy, we just saw Job in the depths of despair last week as he cried out and go, I don't know why this happened. I wish I wasn't born. And if I was born, I wish it was a stillbirth. And since it wasn't a stillbirth, I wish God would just let me die now. He is in the depths of despair. And so you think, man, here come the friends, the friends who have come to comfort him. Hopefully they will encourage his lagging faith. But I want to remind you, Eliphaz is not God. He's a man. He's a man who I think loves Job. I think he's a man who wants to try and speak for God. And so as Eliphaz speaks, we have to weigh his words carefully. We have to test everything in light of Scripture and hold fast to that which is true, right? Okay, so what was his advice? He comes and he says, okay, Job, I'm going to start to speak and I want you to listen. So watch this. Let's go to chapter 4, Job chapter 4, and listen to what he says. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, if one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Okay, so here's what he's saying. Okay, Job, I want to be kind. I, 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 okay, I, we've sat here silently for seven days. You just unloaded on us, and now we're going to start talking, Job. Right, and, we wanna, and I want to I try to say that there's things I have to be able to say to you, Job. And so what does he say? Look at verse 3. Behold, you have instructed many, and you've strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you've made firm the feeble knees. In other words, Job, there was a day when you did exactly what I'm going to do. And so I need you, if you will, to take some of your own medicine, Job. 
I, I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to, your suffering has touched you, and now I need to talk to you about that suffering, right? I, I, you were a source of help to so many people. You upheld them. You encouraged them in their time of need. Now, Job, receive what I'm about to say in the same vein, okay? Uh, so, so what does he say? Look at, verse, look at verse 5. He says, but now it has come to you and you're impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. Literally, that word touch means it has struck you. It wasn't just a light tap. No, the calamities that have come upon Job's life, we saw those in chapters 1 and 2 as Job just struggles with, you know, death of all of his children and his, his wealth wiped out. His health, you know, is now in peril. And so he's saying, this has all struck you, and now you're impatient. So Job, what you need to do is take some of your own medicine. Remember what you used to do for the young people? Remember when people would come to you for advice, and you would talk to them? And now I want you to listen to the advice you would have given. I think what we're finding out here is that as Eliphaz talks, we're actually, if you will, hearing echoes of Job. We're hearing things that Job would have said to people at a different time. You're hearing his own advice. In other words, Eliphaz and Job share a worldview. They understand the world through a certain lens, which you're going to see if this is true and this is, this is going on in Job's mind, then, you, you'll, you'll, it, then it's no wonder that Job is struggling as hard as he's struggling through this, right? Now, so Eliphaz, okay, I'm about to give you some advice. Brace yourself, Job. Here it comes. What is it? Let's go to chapter 4 and, uh, and verse 6. Here is the beginning of his advice. He says, is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Okay, we're starting to get to the bottom, sort of the summary of Eliphaz and his other friends' theology. And that is, what are they saying? He's saying, look, look, if, if you're a godly man, if you're a pious person, if you're a man of integrity, if you fear the Lord, he will reward you. That's just the way the universe works, Job. You live in a world where good things happen to good people. And if you're experiencing bad things, Job, it's because something's wrong with you. Now, I, I hope already some of you are like, this doesn't sound right. Right? Something sounds really wrong with Eliphaz's instruction because it is wrong. Um, and, and, and we're going to see this, right? But, but what, what, why does he say this? Why does, he, why does he come with such confidence that this is how the world works? We'll keep going. Verse 7 through 9, look what he says. He says, remember, who was it that was innocent that ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I've seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same, right? Sow what you reap. Reap what you sow, right? That is, by the breath of, breath of God, they perish, and the blast of, by the blast of his anger, they're consumed. The roar, the, the, the roar of the lion, I'll, let's get to verse 10 in a minute, but here's, here's what I want you to hear. Okay, so he says, look, Job, like this is the way the world works, right? That, 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 that you, you reap what you sow, and innocent people don't suffer, Job, right? That's what he says in verse 7. They just don't suffer. Here is, here's their theology. Here's their understanding of life. This is what Eliphaz teaches. This is probably what Job would have taught people. I've never seen the, an innocent person die young. That's what he's talking about. Or somebody get cut off early in life. That's the idea. It's this idea of somebody being young who perishes and he says, if that happens, then it didn't happen to an innocent person. Now think about this. 
To say I've never seen the innocent person die young is a proposition you can't disprove. They're dead, right? So, so ipso facto, right? The fact that they died early is all the evidence you need, Job, to know that what they did was wicked. Something going on in their life is wicked. Something was messed up with them, right? So he's, he's, he's saying something. He's giving him a watertight, logical argument that you can't argue with this, Job. You reap what you sow. Evil begets evil. Good begets good always. Again, I can teach this and I can say this and you can go, that's just nonsense. There's no way that can be true unless you're really a believer in karma. That's your worldview. That really this is the way things work. And yet, you can be a Christian. You can say, I know that's wrong, but I'll bet you that nine out of 10 of us in here, when we hear of someone else's calamity, one of our first thoughts or one of the places, it's almost programmed into us, one of our instinctual responses, whether we say it out loud or not, is that what did they do? What, what problem, what sin did they commit? Why is this calamity coming upon this? And certainly when it comes upon you. And I've told you before, you get a flat tire on the highway and you think, God, what have I done? Did I sin? Is this why this is happening to me? I'm suffering because of something bad. This is, this is exactly where Eliphaz is taken. That, that the law of physics, you know, that, that for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction actually applies, Eliphaz is going to say, to your spiritual life. Right, that is what, ha- what is true in the natural world is true in the spiritual world. We can see it with our eyes, Job. This is how this works. Listen, all I can think is that Eliphaz hasn't had a very hard life. So far, his experience and his theology match up. Because he looks and says, man, I've not had this. Apparently, he doesn't understand what Brian talked about, lament last week, right? He doesn't understand things like Psalm 73 or Psalm 22 or Psalm 23, these places where you have Jesus crying out. He's going to borrow from those psalms and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The innocent one's going to say that. But for all intents and purposes, this is how he sees, that he understands that the world he lives in runs according to these perfectly logical things. It seems like they should be. In other words, he lives in a world where he believes the prosperity gospel is actually true. Now keep going, because now he's going to wax poetic on us, and look what he says in verse 10. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. He's using all these different Hebrew words for lion. He's trying to get this point across. What's what's he doing there? Lions, you could say, are standing in as a physical manifestation for sin, for wickedness, right? And wickedness is kind of predatory and it brings calamity. And so what it does is it comes and it's looking for prey. But, but what Eliphaz is saying is that it can't find, when it comes to the righteous, its teeth are broken. When it comes to the righteous, it can't feed. It has nothing. It starves because the righteous are untouchable by this kind of thing. See what I mean? He really believes that this is the way the world works. And apparently this is exactly what Job believed. Job, you'd have said the same thing. Innocent people don't suffer. But he keeps going. He says, look, 
Job, you can trust me. My spiritual, the spiritual experience I have or had uh, validates my uh, instruction. Now, let's, let's keep reading in chapter 4 and verse 12. Now, a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me, and trembling which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was a void. There was a silence, and then I heard a voice. That's creepy. Right? Do you hear what he's saying? Okay, like I had this wild spiritual experience, Job, and that's why you should trust what I'm telling you. I'm about to give you some more advice, and this is the basis for it. This is why I want you, the spirit came, I felt a chill, I got goosebumps. It was a sort of ominous experience. Something spoke to Eliphaz in the night, in a vision, perhaps there was some kind of manifestation. And so if you were to say to Eliphaz, Eliphaz, why should I believe you? On what basis do you ground this? He might say something like this, God told me. I had a quiver in my liver, right? <laughs> I had a really wild spiritual experience. And hey, I worship God, so there's no way that could be anything else. I'm, I'm speaking the truth because, and what validates it is this amazing spiritual experience, right? That's what makes it valid, right? How can it be wrong when it feels and seems so right, right? That's the same logic. The Bible says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Paul's going to tell the Galatians and warn them if, if, if we, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach, to, uh, preach a gospel contrary to the one we preach, let him be accursed. I mean, Paul holds out the possibility that some kind of angel of light could show up and teach you things and use all of its supernatural powers to convince you that it's telling you the truth. And he's saying that's not, it's, that, 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 that isn't where we go. That's not where we find our validation, right? That's not, it, this is what false teachers do all the time. The reason you should believe me is God told me. The reason you should believe me is because I had this amazing experience and all of us are left going, wow, well, how can we argue with that? God told you? Or you had this experience and therefore, man, we are, we are mere plebes. I mean, we should just bow down because, man, what you had was something extraordinary. God must really love you, must give you secret messages, and so we should listen to you. Is that the basis of why we listen to people? That's what some of us have done, right? We, we, we allow that experience to overshadow the truth. Here, I've told you this before. If you want to hear the voice of God, I can tell you how to do it. Do you want to hear the voice of God? Read your Bible. And if you want to hear it audibly, have someone read it to you. Right? You will hear the audible voice of God. This is God speaking, right? This is the word that we go to. Now, okay, before we dismiss this experience as like there's no way that was God, what does the Spirit say to him? Well, what advice or, or counsel does this Spirit in the night that sneaks into his room, what does he say? Well, look at verse 17. Can a mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? 
Okay, there's it. There it is. That, that's the message from this, this mysterious spirit in the night. Okay, now, now he's going to go on to say, look, even his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he charged with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, that is human beings, whose foundations the dust were crushed like a moth. Between morning and evening, they're beaten to peace. In other words, our lives are just vapors. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Like, I'm going to die in 100 years. Nobody's going to remember my name. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die and that without wisdom? There's people, right? Like, our, our lives are tenuous. You pitch a tent, you trip over the tent cord, right? And it pulls the peg out and the whole tent falls to the ground. That's the idea. It's, it's, it's that tenuous. So, so why would God find people like that? They can't be pure in his sight. But I, I'm curious. Like, I, I want you to think about this. If, if, um, if that's what he heard, um, let's for a moment assume it was God. Is verse 17 and following, is that something God would say? Careful. I think yes. Absolutely. You're going to hear this in Scripture. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one is good. Not even one. Okay? The Bible actually talks like this. This is God. So let's assume for a moment, maybe this is an angel from God coming into Eliphaz's room. Why does he feel terror? Because here's what it is. This spirit talking to Eliphaz, Eliphaz assumes, I'm here for my friend Job. I'm here to try and counsel him. And God has now given me a vision and he assumes that's a message for Job. No one is righteous. I gotta go tell Job this. This is this massive revelation and this is gonna explain his suffering. What if that spirit came to Eliphaz to warn Eliphaz, Eliphaz, you're not righteous in God's sight. And I'm putting dread and terror upon you to understand that something's wrong with you. You have no business going in and counseling him and saying it's evil and that's why you're suffering. So I, I'm willing to grant that perhaps this is a real spiritual experience, but I'm also willing to say that I think Eliphaz completely misinterpreted what God was saying. See, here's the thing. It's a revelation to him. It's not a revelation to Job that no one is clean in God's sight. Remember chapters one and two? Job fully recognizes that perhaps his children have cursed at God in their hearts. He would offer sacrifices. He understood that, that sin needed a sacrifice, that we were all sinful, but, but again, it, it, the other reason I think that it's not God talking to Job is because this is irrelevant to Job's suffering. The fact that he can say Job is a sinner has nothing to do with Job's suffering. Do you remember what we said in chapters one and two? That one of the points the narrator and even God himself reiterates twice is that have you considered my servant Job? He's upright. There's no one like him. He's a man of character. He has integrity. He walks with the Lord. In other words, the big message we were supposed to see in, neons, in neon lights is that Job's suffering has nothing to do with Job's sin and certainly nothing to do with the sin that's common to man. All of us are sinners. Are you saying, therefore, we deserve this kind of of, 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 of suffering from God? That's what Eliphaz is saying. He thinks this is some major revelation. 
Job's like, man, I, I understand that. I sacrificed for it. I understand there's got to be a suffering. I cannot be pure in God's eyes. Does this explain my suffering? No. Well, he keeps going. Look now at chapter 5. He's going to say to Job, Job, here's the other thing you need to know. There is no mediator. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Call now. Is there anybody who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? The idea is, is there anybody up in heaven that will be your advocate? Right? Job's going to wonder the same thing. God, is there anybody who will stand, my attorney, who will defend me in heaven before God? Now, now Eliphaz is going to say, nope, you keep looking. And in fact, it's causing you problems. Keep going in verse 2. He says, surely vexation kills the fool and jealousy slays the simple. Job, stop looking. Right? There's no point in getting all worked up. Job, nobody's up in heaven that you can get to. And, and God isn't coming down to you. And so getting angry and jealous isn't helpful. Job, in fact, it's foolish, right? Vexation kills the fool, right? That's the idea. You're, you're acting like a fool. And you know what happens to foolish people, Job? Look at verse, chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. I have seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there's no one to deliver them. The hungry eat his harvest, and he takes it out, even out of thorns, and the thirsty plant, uh, pant after his wealth. Do, do you hear how cruel this is? You remember what happened to Job's children? They all died. And do you hear what Eliphaz is saying this? Fools suffer and so do their children. So, so here again, here's, a, here's something that proves the point. The fact that your children died shows us something about you, Job. It tells us that you're foolish. Just look at your children. They suffered because you sinned. Now, now let me say something. Is it possible for your sin to cause your children to suffer? Yes, of course. Of course you could, right? Dad, if you run off and have an affair with a woman, uh, should you be surprised if, if something similar happens to your children? They follow in your footsteps or, you know, there's some sort of sexual addiction because they think that's what this life is all about? I mean, no, no. Like, like in other words, there are natural consequences that follow many times. But can we say that, gosh, if my, my children die young, it's because of the foolishness of their father? That's what he's saying. See, he's got, he lives in this always and never. There's never any gray in Eliphaz's world. There's never any, well, not, well that, 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 that's always true, he's going to say. Not, no, there's, there's times when that's true, but there's times when that's not true. There's some of you that say, man, I have, I raised my kid. I taught them the word of God. I discipled them as a young person. I walked with them. We had a great, you know, and they walked away from God. And, and if I'm listening to Eliphaz, you should feel ashamed of yourself. You did something wrong. You blew it as a mom or dad. That's not how the Bible talks. In fact, God's going to get very angry at Israel at one moment and say, man, don't, don't talk about how our teeth are set on edge because our fathers sowed sour grapes, right? Say, no, no, no. You're, you're reaping what you sowed. It's coming on you for the foolishness. So yes, our sin can cause harm in ourselves. Yes, our sin can cause harm in our children. But is that always true? No. I keep going. In verse 6, he says, For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. You see what he's saying? 
your problems aren't just coming from nowhere. There is a cause. What is it? Man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. In other words, it says it's as natural as starting a fire and watching, always there's just, it's a natural process. Sparks fly up and he says, just like sparks fly upward, sinfulness causes trouble. Job, your problem is obvious. Listen to me. This is, the, the cause of your suffering is your sin. And he says, look, wisdom taught me this. This is how the world works. This is just how it works. So now Job what should you do in light of this truth? Look at, look at verse eight. As for me, I would seek God. And to God, I would uh, commit my cause who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth. He sends waters on the field. He sits on high. Those who are lowly and those who mourn are, are lifted to safety. Man, you hear that and you're like, yes! Every word is true. Turn to God, seek his face. He's sovereign and he, he knows what he's doing, Job. And that's all true. Everything you read right there in verses eight through 11, you can look at it and say, yes and amen. God is doing something, Job, you can't perceive. True. He's weaving a tapestry. You're on this side of the loom and you can't see the beautiful thing that he's doing because it seems all fuzzy to you. True. But God is sovereignly doing all this. You can affirm everything he says right here. But I think part of what, Job, what, what he's saying to Job here is, Job, you're not wiser than God. You have to remember this, Job. Right? You're not wiser than God. God is good. He's sovereign. He's just. But keep going. Look at verse 12. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty so the poor have hope and his justice shuts her mouth. Now, 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 now hear me. I can affirm that everything that Eliphaz says there is, is true. And I want to explain this. This is really key for us to understand, right? That God is good and God is sovereign and God is just. And Eliphaz says those things and we can say yes and amen. Eliphaz, if you know the end of the story with his other two friends, is going to be rebuked by God for basically saying, you have misrepresented me. But don't hear that as saying, there's never a true word that comes out of Eliphaz's mouth or the other friends. They say true things. They say good biblical things. God really does do some of these things. In fact, you're going to see here in a moment, Paul is going to quote approvingly, by the way, Eliphaz in 1 Corinthians. He's going to use this speech to say, why does Paul do that? Because it's true. What he says, God really does trip up fools who think they're righteous. But here's the other thing you need to know, is that Eliphaz's time horizon for all these things happening is way too short, right? Um, do not misquote me here, okay? I'm about to say something that if you, don't, if, you, if, you, if you only quote part of this, I'm a heretic, okay? The prosperity gospel is true, that's the part I don't want you to quote me on. <laughs> With the right time horizon. Here's what I mean by that. They teach 
that it is your destiny to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and, and, and wise, and, 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 you know, have everything you're supposed to, like, it's your best life now. What's their time horizon? This life. See, Christian, we go, no, 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 no. In this world, there will be suffering. If they hated you, they'll hate, if they hated me, they'll hate you, right? All those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why can I say the prosperity gospel is true? Because if I take it all the way out, like I talked about, the dot versus the line, if I take it into the line of eternity, it's all true. The best is yet to come. There will be prosperity and health and wealth and everything you ever hoped for. See, see, his problem is the problem of the prosperity gospel that he looks at it in a much too narrow time horizon. Job, Job, these things should be happening now, right? People who, when God trips up men now, it's because you must be a fool. That's what he's thinking about, Job. Job, apparently you've done something foolish. You're a fool in your heart. I can see that. He thinks he knows his motives. He can't see that. Only God can see that. And so I think you're in trouble. So what should Job do? What's the solution? Well, you keep reading verse 17. And he basically says this, submit to God's discipline. Look at verse 17. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. You're going to see that in the Proverbs over and over again. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles and seven. No evil shall touch you. Job, if you'll submit to the discipline of God, this is incredible what he says here. But here's what he assumes. He assumes that what Job is going through is discipline. God disciplines. Proverbs says God disciplines those he loves. So if things are happening to you, okay, maybe it's not, you know, that, that, that God is punishing you, but it could be, Job, that God is disciplining you for your own good. You've committed some sin. He's trying to eradicate that sin. And the best thing you can do, Job, right now is simply submit to the Lord and God will come along and he'll bind up your wounds. I can tell that this is what's happening. Okay, you are being disciplined. I know this, LFS says, because it's perfectly logical. There's no other explanation. There can be. I can't even conceive of another explanation. And Job's going to battle this, right? But now, let, keep, keep going. Look at verse 20. He says, in famine, what's he going to do? How's, he, how's God going to deliver you? In famine, he'll redeem you from death and war from the power of the sword. You should be hidden from the lash of the tongue. You should not fear destruction when it comes, okay? There's gonna, when, when, when war comes, you're rescued. False accusations, you're rescued. It won't happen to you. I mean, our world has erupted in war. And if Eliphaz is right... There can't be any righteous people on the ground. There can't be any godly people caught in the crossfire, right? Because he's going to rescue from all this. It's not going to happen to you. And then finally, he says, look at verse 22. He says, at destruction and famine, you'll laugh. You'll still not fear the beasts of the, of the earth, right? Nothing's going to come and harm you. 
for you shall be in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace to you. In other words, nature is just going to cooperate. Wall Street, in today's terms, Wall Street's going to, your investments are going to make it. Nothing's going to keep them from, from you know, n- n- not producing the way you want. You shall know that your tent is at peace. You shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. Your home's going to be great. There'll be peace in your home. Your kids are going to be all right. You shall know that your offspring shall be many, and your descendants is the grass of the earth. You shall come to your grave and ripe old age like a sheaf gathered up in its season. Job, it'll be easy sailing in life and then you'll just die. That's what happens to righteous people. This is the wisdom of the world. See, here, I don't want you to read through the lines of what he's saying. Job, if you'll submit to God, if you'll actually be obedient to him, Look at how great your life will be. And in some ways, Eliphaz, remember remember what Satan did when he came before God? He comes to him and he says this, the only reason Job worships you and fears you is because you bless him. You take away the blessing. You take away his health. You take away his wealth. He'll curse you to your face. See, they don't love you, God. They just love your stuff. And God's like, I'm going to show you, Job. I'm going to show you, Satan. I'm going to show you with this man, Job. And you watch. I'm going to show you that my glory is greater than the stuff. And he'll still worship me. What's Eliphaz doing? He's tempting Job to follow Satan's logic. Job, don't you want the stuff? Don't you want to get back to that place where you're, you know, your crops are, are booming, your investments on Wall Street are going crazy, you've got tons of money in the bank, your family's happy, you've got a nice house, nice life, and you go to your grave and it's been a, it's been a wonderful life. Then obey God and you'll get all the stuff again. See, see he's, he's, he's being used as a tool of Satan, even though this is a man that I'm convinced he loves God. But this is, this is what he will do for you. But then look at how he ends it, verse 27. He essentially says, and Job, this isn't just my opinion. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear and know it is for your good. Job, Job, this is just common wisdom. All the wise people are thinking like this, right? That's the idea. Everybody is, I mean, like even you, Job, at one time would have agreed with everything I said. So is all this true? This is the wisdom of the world. I told you, you know what Paul says? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19, he quotes Eliphaz, where he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. You know what the context of that is? The cross of Christ. That in the cross, God turns everything upside down, or right side up, you might say. Right? That is that the world looks and says that cross is foolish. Paul says that cross is the wisdom of God. The world looks and says those people must be foolish. He says those people are the wise. It's the wise of the world who are the fools. I'm going to frustrate the wisdom of the wise. I'm going to, the discernment of discerning, I'm going to thwart. He turns it all upside down. In other words, he's saying there, there is one we look to and, and we see it differently right? John the Baptist comes along and says, I'm not the Christ. But what does he end with? He doesn't end there. He doesn't say, I'm not the Christ. Don't look at me. He says, don't look at me as he turns and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold, the perfect, spotless, innocent sufferer 
who endured all of this hardship, who was forsaken by God, and he's the one you should listen to. He's the substitute. He pays for your sin. There is a mediator, and it's Jesus Christ. There is, there is hope that we can't get up to God, but God will come down to us. See, here's the thing, Foothill. Praise God, we are New Testament Christians because what Job may believe and what he's struggling with and what Eliphaz certainly believes is not anything that your New Testament agrees with. It's going to look and says, nope, nope, there's, there's innocent suffering. Nope, there's a sinless, guiltless, spotless one who will actually be sacrificed for our sins. No, there really is a mediator. You know, God really will come down in the form of this suffering servant who will pay for our sins. So we, we can't get to God, but God comes to us. I'm not the Christ. He is. Look to him. I hope that helps us. I hope that helps some of you in this room that I think are, are struggling with suffering, wondering where's God. He's exactly where he was with Jesus. Whether you feel like I deserved it or you look and say, man, I can't get to the bottom of it. Know that no matter what, God is with you. Jesus Christ understands there was one who suffered innocently in your place on your behalf. Behold the Lamb of God. Let's pray. Father, well, thank you. Thank you for the book of Job. Thank you for the ways that it speaks into the reality of our situations. God, people who are struggling and suffering and wondering where you are in all of this. God, I thank you that you expose lies even within Scripture. I thank you that we know the end of the story, that what Eliphaz says, as eloquent and articulate and reasonable and convincing and logical as it may seem, it's wrong. The innocent do suffer at times. There is a mediator. God did come down. And we praise you for that, God. And I pray that would be a comfort to our hearts today. But God, I also pray that there would be a turning, a turning uh, in faith to Jesus Christ this morning. People who recognize that, Lord, apart from, from Christ, uh, they are eternally separated from God. Apart from Christ, there is no mediator. Apart from Christ, there, there is no Messiah. There is no one we can look to. The, the problems in our world that we're even seeing unfold even in the last few weeks is a, is a cry from the earth of a longing for the Messiah Jesus to come and save us from our sins. So I pray God today would be a day where people individually would do that. They would turn from their sin and repentance and turn in faith to Jesus Christ and that you would begin a work in them that only you can do by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, if it takes suffering, 
And Lord, I don't want to ask you to withdraw your hand if suffering will bring people redemption, if suffering will cause them to finally see, Lord. I think about people I'm praying for right now that are on the list that I created, Lord, neighbors and friends and family. And I'm just praying, God, I'm not asking you to deliver them from suffering, Lord, if you choose that you would use suffering in your sovereign will to to bring them to a place where they cry out to Jesus. And then they hear that you'll embrace them as your own. Lord, do what we sang about this morning, I pray. We love you. We thank you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.